Thank you, choir. When some of you saw my sermon title this morning, your your mind immediately went to Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet. Now, most of you know the plot, so I will not go into great detail. But basically, you have a man who falls in love with a woman and vice versa. But there's a problem. And the problem is the two families are at war with one another. And so the idea of them two, those two people coming together was, was highly unlikely. And so at one point in the play, Juliet says to Romeo, which are the two lovers' names, if you did not already know that, Juliet says this, she says, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And Juliet is basically telling her love that you know, your name has nothing to do with who you are. I'm in love with you, not your name. And in other words, she's saying you know, a rose would smell just as sweet if you were to call it something else. So the fact that you call it a rose is just some artificial construction and... It should not hinder us from being together. And although Juliet's intentions are good, we know that it's not very easy to separate a person from his or her name. And the idea that the name, your name, is simply an artificial label is something that was very foreign to ancient Hebrew culture, and even today to some degree. And so as we move into this Old Testament book of Ruth, It's going to be very important for us to pay special attention to the names of the people. Because names in the ancient Hebrew culture were more than simply a way to call you out of the crowd, but names were not only a way to identify you, but also to describe you. And so we'll need to pay special attention to that. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to set the stage for this great story And then I want to introduce you to several of the characters. And as we go along through the book of Ruth, and specifically this first chapter, I want you to think about your name. I'm not necessarily talking about the name that your your parents gave you, but I want you to think about how people would describe you if they were to give you a name that describes who you are. I I went to school with this guy... Uh, and he was always smiling or always laughing. He was just one of those guys that had the you know smile just kind of plastered on his face all the time. Like even when he was frowning, he was smiling. That kind of guy. And so I don't even remember his real name, but everybody just called him Happy. That was his name. Hey, Happy, come here. That was his name, Happy. And so that name, that a nickname that attached to him, was more than just you know some artificial. Uh, label with no meaning, but actually describe his disposition. So I want you to think about how people would describe you. What name would they give you if they would describe your disposition, your life? And I want you to think about that as we enter the book of Ruth this morning. Well, in verse 1, the author sets the stage for the story. He says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, he's setting the tone. He's setting the stage. He's, he's letting you know when this took place. And it took place during the period of the judges. Now, if you want to know uh, what that period was like, all you need to do is flip back a few pages to the book of Judges. And specifically, you could flip back to the last chapter in the book of Judges, chapter 21, and read verse 25, which says this. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you can imagine the ebb and flow of the book of Judges. You know, the book of Judges chronicles uh, the, the sin of God's people and also the turning back to God of God's people, the, the oppression of God's people and the deliverance of God's people. And so the book of Judges chronicles a very tumultuous time in the life of God's people. And the book of Judges gives special attention to those leaders that God raised up to deliver His people. But the book of Ruth, what it does, and this is what I love about it, is it dives into the people of God and it shines the spotlight on just a normal, everyday family, just like you and me. And it just shows you and shows me, this is how God was at work in the midst of just a normal family. The author also tells us that there was a famine in the land, and just kind of mentions that. But it would, be, it would be a mistake to gloss over that, because that plays a major role in the story. There was a famine in the land, not just any land, but the land, the promised land, the land that God had given His people. And it's also important for you to know a little bit of the context that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 11, when God speaks to His people and He says, I'm going to give you this land, but there's a few things you need to know, and this was one of them. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, this is what we read. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So in other words, there's a famine in the promised land which should trigger your mind if you are familiar with the Scriptures that Maybe this isn't just a kind of a random act of nature, but maybe God is trying to get His people's attention. So that's the stage. That's, that's, what, uh, that's the context in which this story takes place. During the period of the Judges, there's a famine in the land, in the promised land. And now I want to introduce you to several of the characters. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. We read, a man of Bethlehem and Judah went out to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. So the first person I want to introduce you to is Elimelech. Now, Elimelech is the husband of Naomi and the father of two sons, and many of you may be able to relate to Elimelech. Elimelech means, my God is king. That's what his name means. My God is king. And so his name communicates that this is a man who walks with God, who knows God. Or at least that's what you would think. You know, just like many of us would say, we're Christians, which simply means we are followers of Christ. Christ is our king. And yet many of us know people that would say they're Christians, but they're not necessarily following Jesus. You know, they're not seeking. His kingdom and His righteousness. You know, they're trying to establish their own kingdom, their own righteousness apart from Him, yet they use the label Christian. Christ is my King, they may say. 
And what we learn here from Elimelech, as you'll see in just a moment, is just because you have the name doesn't mean you have the faith or that you have a relationship with God. And so we have this man, Elimelech, and it seems to be the case with him. And we read that he takes his family and he leaves Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in the promised land. And he, he leaves because of a famine. And he heads west, perhaps going around the, the Dead Sea to a place called Moab. And so he takes his family from Bethlehem to a place filled with idols and a place where people worship many gods other than the one true God. Now Moab is where the Moabites live. <laughs> no surprise there. Now you may say, well, where did the Moabites come from? Well, if you go back to the book of Genesis, there was a man named Lot, Abraham's nephew. And one day, Lot uh, has a little too much to drink and enters into a relationship with his oldest daughter. And the result of that is a son that is born and his name is Moab. And so, from Moab comes this people who don't know the Lord and who are seeking out other gods and filled with all types of behavior, etc. So, this is where they're going. And what I want you to see here is Elimelech is making a move. He's leading his family to a place not with an eye towards their relationship with God, but rather with an eye towards something else. There's a famine in the land, and so his eyes are more focused on economics than it is with a relationship with God and how his family can know God. Now let me try to bring this into our context here for a moment. Now, let's imagine our city is hit by a depressed economy. Some of you may think, well, you don't need much of an imagination for that because <laughs> our country has been challenged with that for several years now. Now, just think about you know, the economy's in the tank. It's hard to find a job. Uh, you know, you're trying to pay your bills. You're having a hard time putting food on the table. And then you, you hear about this job uh, market in another country. Uh, you know, it's a, perhaps a dangerous country. Maybe it's a country where, you know, Christianity is illegal. Maybe you can't. There are, no, there are no churches, but you're thinking, hey, the job market's good there. I'm going to move there, find a job so I can provide for my family. And you may say, well, Ron, that doesn't sound you know, evil. It doesn't sound bad, necessarily. Well, in our culture, surely would say that nothing wrong with that. I mean, make your move up the ladder, provide, that's fine. You make as much money as you can. And we can tend to think success can start being tied up in resources possessions, provisions, money. And so we seek to pile that on and seek to pursue it at all costs. And so culturally, we may say, well, that, nothing wrong with that, moving from one place to another to find a job, make more money. What's, what's the problem? Well, there, there's not a problem with seeking provision for your family. Actually, you have a responsibility to do that. But when that becomes the governing factor in your decision-making, then we have a problem. And I think this is what was happening in the life of Elimelech. He was not making a decision based on God being his king. He was making his choice based on the economy being his king. You, I'm going to make a move. I'm going to make a shift. I'm going to take another job purely based on the economics, not based on 
my relationship with God or my family's relationship with God. You know, how many of us have made decisions like that? Or at least been tempted to make a decision like that? Where on paper it made sense economically, but spiritually it was not a good choice. Or it would not have been a good choice. And what I find is, I know that this is true of my own life, and maybe you can relate to this, is that it's easy to say Christ is my king when I have money in the checking account. Like Jimmy prayed earlier, it's comfortable. You know, the air conditioner is working. feels pretty good in here. I have no problem saying Christ is my king as long as I'm getting what I want. But when I have to start sacrificing or I'm not getting what I want, uh, or even when bad things begin to happen, it's a lot harder to say, Christ is my king. And so you have Elimelech, takes his family and takes them out of everything they knew, everyone, everything that they knew, and takes them to a foreign land where there are no people of God. And as a husband and a father, I believe Elimelech fails to show Godly leadership here. And I hope, men, that you, that you pay attention to this and that you don't make your decisions just based on money. Because when you make a decision, especially husbands, fathers, when you make a decision, there's more to it than simply your balance of your checkbook or paying the bills. And what we'll see here is that it affects all those around you, specifically your family. And I want to introduce you to two more people. Elimelech had two sons, and their names were Malon and Chilion. Now, Malon means sickly or weak, and Chilion means annihilation <laughs> or failing. This is like if you had two sons, you would name them Cancer and Loser. <laughs> Live up to your name, son. You know, little, little Cancer, little Loser. But it describes them in some way. And you know, the sons are just mentioned briefly. They, they do not play a, a significant role in the story. However, I want you to see the effect of the father's choice to move. You know, He moves his family to Moab. And he's got two boys. Now, these boys are going to grow up into men. Now, who are they going to marry? Well, they're going to marry the, the women around them. Well, there are no... Godly women in Moab. And so they marry Moabites. Now God's people throughout history have had a deep concern about you marrying someone who does not share your same faith in God. And all you have to do is just pause for a moment and think about the complexity of, of trying to work that out. Both in a, a marriage relationship parenting your children, etc. Your godly people are, or God's people are to marry God's people. Christians are to marry Christians. And we see that even today, even in the New Testament. So Elimelech moves his family and his sons take Moabite wives. And the reason they do so is because they're in Moab. Well, how'd they get to Moab? Well, Elimelech brought them there. And so what I want you to see is that men, when you make decisions, fathers, 
husbands, when you make decisions, it affects those around you. And you need to ask yourself, am I making a decision based on Christ being my King? Or am I allowing some other thing to dictate my choices? Well, while in Moab, we read that in an effort to save lives, that lives are actually lost. Look at verses 3 and 5 through 5. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other is Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The ironic twist in this story is that Elimelech, he leaves Bethlehem with his family in order to preserve their life, And yet he gets to Moab and his family dies. Everyone except Naomi. And now it's time to introduce you to one of the main characters of the story. Her name's Naomi and her name means pleasant or delightful. And she followed her husband to Moab with her two sons. And Naomi undergoes what could be the most difficult form of suffering. She loses her husband and both her sons. And now she's left with her two daughters-in-law. That's all she has. And the question is, what will they do? Now that they've been placed in what could be argued as the most vulnerable position in society, how will they respond? Where will they go? What will they do? Well, one day, when when Naomi is in the field uh, of Moab... She receives news from Bethlehem in verse 6. We read, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. The Lord had visited His people and given them food. And upon hearing this news, Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem. Now, next week we'll turn our attention more to Ruth and Orpah, but I want to I stay with Naomi uh, for, for the moment. Skip down to verses 19 through 21. Here's what they say. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Speaking here of Naomi and Ruth. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So, you see the setting here. All the men are working in the fields, most likely. And so, Naomi and Ruth are coming into Bethlehem. The women's eyes, they see these two women coming into the town. And as they come a little closer, perhaps some of the older women who knew Naomi before she left, they recognize her, they begin to see her. She's aged a little bit. It's been over ten years. She's suffered a great deal, which obviously takes its toll on you. And she comes in and then they recognize her as Naomi. And they say, is this Naomi? And what does she say? 
Well, it would be like you moving away from Augusta for 10 years and coming back to church one Sunday, maybe coming to your Sunday school class and seeing your friends, people that know you, and they say, how are you doing? And then you say, fine. Well, that's not what Naomi says. She says, they say, how are you doing? You would expect at least a response today among us. We would say, Yo, I'm, doing, I'm doing fine. Because most of us are not as honest as Naomi. And when they asked Naomi how she was doing, she says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, delightful. Call me Mara, which means bitter. You imagine this morning in your Sunday school class, someone came in, you say, how are you doing? I'm bitter, you know. It probably didn't happen. Fine, I'm fine. Good. Everything, everything's great. Everything's good. Now, I don't want to elevate being bitter because we know we should not be bitter or pursue bitterness. We see, you know, Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 30-32. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. However, at least you have to admire Naomi's honesty. <laughs> She's at least telling you how she feels. I am bitter. I'm bitter with God. I went away full. I'm coming back empty. And God was involved in that. In some way, shape, or form, He was, he was involved in that. Now, Naomi's not plastering a fake smile and pretending everything's alright. She's been affected by suffering and she's bitter with God. Have you ever been bitter with God? Probably so. And yet, sometimes we have a hard time discussing what's going on in our lives with other people. And I'm not saying we should go around and just you know, spewing our bitterness on everybody. But I do think there are places and times and people that we can share lives with, that we can share how we're feeling, how we're dealing with life, suffering, trials, difficulty, and we can be honest and share that with other people. You know, I had a student one time, I was sitting there, we were talking about Christianity, and he said, Ron, I'm having a hard time putting a smile on my face all the time. In other words, he, he, in his mind, he thought, Christians are the only emotion Christians are supposed to have is the emotion of happiness. I said, I don't know where you got that from. You know. Yes, we should have a sense of security and joy in Christ, but we mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. It breaks our heart when bad things, evil things happen. We suffer. We're not always smiling. And so we look at Naomi. We admire her honesty, but we see that her heart is, is very troubled. And maybe you feel like Naomi. Maybe you are in this field of famine with the Lord. Well, I want to introduce you to one more character. 
He's referred to throughout this book several times. And he is referred to by the narrator. He's also referred to by uh, the characters within the book. And he's mentioned by a few names. He's called Yahweh, Lord. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's, it's the name that God uh, made Himself known to, to Moses and, and to the Israelites when He was entering into this covenant relationship with them. That He is Yahweh, which has a strong relational connotation. Another name that is used is found in verse 20. When Naomi said, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She calls God the Almighty. In other words, she's highlighting the power of God. And she, believed that, she believes that God is sovereign, that He is intimately involved in His creation. And yet she also recognizes that although God is sovereign, He doesn't stop every evil thing from happening. And He doesn't keep you from, in, from suffering loss. So God is sovereign, He's involved, and yet at times, He still allows these things to happen. And so Naomi calls Him the Almighty. And this is why she's bitter. is because God has allowed her suffering. And she's having a hard time finding her joy in God. And maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like you're in a, a spiritual famine this morning. We'll have good news, and that is God visits His people. We see it here, we see it all throughout Scripture, and God has visited us. He has not left us to ourselves. We read in the Scripture that He sends His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ comes down, and He not only dies on the cross for our sin, but He endures life. He, life full of temptation, full of loss, full of suffering. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, because Jesus Himself suffered when He was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. And what we see is that God is a relational God. And He has made it possible for you and for me to enter a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And if you've placed your faith in Christ this morning, if Christ is truly your King, then you can have confidence that as you wade through the difficulty of life that God will not leave you, He will not turn His back on you, but rather He will use your difficulty and your trials and your suffering to make you into the person He wants you to be. And there may be famine, there may be bitterness, and there may be loss, but God has visited His people and God says He will never turn His back on you he will never leave you, but He will work all things for the good of those who love Him. And so the question is, are you His? Is he, is he your King? Are you a Christian or is that just a title? Or is it just an artificial name tag that has no bearing on your life? You know, what, what would people call you if they were honest? What would they say? Would they call you Christian? If not, if your faith is not in Christ, if God is not your King, then this morning I want to challenge you 
to give your life to Christ. Receive His forgiveness and enjoy the security and joy that comes with knowing Him as your Savior. Would people call you bitter? If you're bitter with life, the life that God has allowed you to experience, then I challenge you to look to Christ who can sympathize with your weaknesses. What would people call you? I'll tell you this. If you're in Christ, God calls you a son and a daughter. He says He'll never leave you. He'll never turn His back on you. 